Hi, my name is Sandy Gans, and you're listening to the Animal Academy Podcast. AnimalAcademyPodcast.com Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. One of the most devastating moments I've ever experienced is recognizing my pet isn't feeling well or something just doesn't seem right. It could be turning up their nose at food, not having as much energy, or not playing like they once did before. It's always been a very scary moment, especially when hearing the diagnosis of cancer. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kim Selting, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois, who will discuss cancer treatments available, research, and clinical trials. On a personal note, Dr. Selting was my dog's veterinarian many, many years ago until she left to pursue advanced degrees and certifications. Fast forward many years later, I heard that she returned to Missouri, so I reached out since my dog was having some health issues. Dr. Selting at that time went above and beyond to help me through the process of integrating care across departments at the University of Missouri's Veterinary Hospital. I appreciated the compassion and follow-up during that very emotional time. And now I'd like to introduce my guest, Dr. Kim Selting. Welcome, Dr. Selting. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Hi, Allison. It's good to talk to you again. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'm always learning something from you, and you are so busy in the field. Would you like to uh, talk a little bit about your background? Sure. I grew up in Colorado. I was a horse-crazy little girl, so I was into, you know, I rode horses and uh, and just saw myself in a career with animals. And I, w- I was one of those people who wanted to be a veterinarian for as long as I can remember. Just when I was a kid, it, that was just seemed like the only path that I would ever take, and it uh, has never changed. So growing up in Colorado, we have uh, you know, had a good vet school at Colorado State University, so that mm-hmm. seemed like a very natural path for me to take as well. And I went to vet school to be, to be a, a horse veterinarian. I just thought that oh. that would be my life. And when I completed undergraduate, did some uh, other interesting things, went abroad for a year, came back and started veterinary school. And, you know, I learned so much about veterinary medicine. And I found that I really, really enjoyed the problem solving aspect of many, many sides to internal medicine. And uh, I realized that uh, horses would always be my my love and my hobby, but I didn't want them to be my career. And I really wanted a career in small animal medicine because that's really what intrigued me. And I enjoyed a lot of the challenges associated with treating older patients because you have to consider all aspects of an individual patient's health when Mm -hmm. you're making a treatment plan. You know, and I just felt like that was going to be the most rewarding for me because there's a lot of creativity in trying to tailor a treatment plan to each animal. When I finished my uh, veterinary training, I knew that I wanted to go on and do some additional training. I applied for and was accepted to a rotating internship at Animal Medical Center in New York City and spent a year there seeing a bazillion cases and meeting a bazillion people and learning all sorts of new things about veterinary medicine. And then my life took me back to St. Louis, and that's where I spent a year in emergency work and three years in a really good quality small animal private practice. And I really enjoyed that time. I knew that I wanted to specialize because I just really liked the idea of being able to focus on one area of veterinary medicine and I think that there are people who really enjoy being um, a good general practitioner and being able to kind of take on any challenge that comes at you. And I wanted to channel my energy into a specialty. And I really, really was interested in oncology because I felt that cancer sucks. (laughs) Cancer is terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like that was the best way to spend my days. Well, we were really sad to see you leave, uh, many of us in the St. Louis community, but we were really privileged to have had you treat our animals for so long, and also proud of the fact that you went to pursue other um, advanced degrees and certification. 
Yeah, I um, then went to Colorado State, went back to Colorado to do my medical oncology residency and then joined the faculty at the University of Missouri. And while I was there, I had maintained a strong interest in radiation oncology as well. And so during my time at Missouri, I completed a second residency and, and became board certified in radiation oncology in 2013. And then um, that is what led me to the University of Illinois uh, because they had a unique opportunity for me to come develop a radiation oncology program here with some really amazing equipment and, and just many, many opportunities. That's really exciting. Yeah, it has been. Do you get referrals from pets, regular veterinarians, or what is your place in that in that process? So we are. There are some veterinary schools that require a referral. We are not that way, nor was Missouri. Um, owners can self-refer. So if we have owners who know their pet has had a diagnosis of cancer and they want to hear what we have to say, then they can simply call and make an appointment. We do also take referrals. So we have veterinarians call saying that they have discussed a diagnosis of cancer with their pet owner and they want to help facilitate the transfer of information so that they can come hear what we have to say here. So it can happen both ways here. And and we mostly, you know, if someone calls in and says they're interested in uh, consultation, then they speak with our technicians initially to get scheduled at a time that works for them and that works for us. And then they come in and, and speak with a clinician about um, what tests might be needed to answer their questions and what kinds of treatment options are available. So it sounds like integrated care in cancer treatment is really important. It is very important. I think uh, when you use the word integrated, I think of a couple of different ways that that could be applied. Integrated, when the first thing that comes to mind for me is integration of medical oncology, radiation oncology, and surgical oncology because surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy are the three the three common or the three uh, standard arms of traditional cancer therapy. So we often are balancing what the respective roles of those three modalities or treatment modalities are. I think you also could use the word integrated to, you know, to understand that we're, that this is a very, very much a team approach. And so we're integrating general care and good palliative supportive care with specialty care with, you know, the owner's involvement because pet owners are being an advocate for their, you know, for their pets. And so they want to be an active part of of treatment. And so mm-hmm. being able to to really define what their role is if they need to be doing certain medications or exercises or, you know, all of that I think is critical to a positive outcome. You know, I once said when I was in the middle of that with several of my dogs, I, I thought, you know, I, I wish human medicine would emulate this because I really had some really good experiences with University of Missouri, Columbia, and the veterinary hospital there, and the integration of care with the local veterinarian that my dog was seeing. And it was really top-notch communication. Never experienced that in human medicine. No. Well, I'm I'm glad that that was your experience. I Mm -hmm. do think that as a veterinarian, we're a little bit closer to, I guess, to the management of cases. I think in, in human medicine, they are, uh, even though I'm a specialist, they are um, maybe more specialized in human medicine where they really focus on just their part in the treatment of a patient, whereas I I will be more involved in all parts of a, of a pet's treatment, I think, and that's probably a, a generalization. I'm sure it's not always that way in either veterinary or human medicine, but I do think that we are just a sort of a layer closer to our patients than, than uh, human specialists are sometimes, so... Well, that was certainly my experience. And speaking of University of Missouri, uh, Columbia, when I had my dog, uh, when she was receiving treatment there, I heard from the rehab department. I heard from all the different specialists who Mm -hmm. then had somebody that coordinated the care among all of them. So I thought that was a, a positive, too. Yeah, and I think that that is, you know, the, as we develop uh, in veterinary medicine, there are many different specialties. And as we develop those and more, we are able to offer that kind of care, you know, being able to include things like physical therapy in, in the treatment plan for a pet is really a, a nice addition to our, to our repertoire. You know, I, I like hearing you say treatment plan because that's kind of one of my one of my things for my social work background is uh, working on treatment plans with with clients. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what a treatment plan with animals might look like? So well, I'll speak primarily from the my perspective, which mm-hmm. is that of treating cancer. I think when we evaluate a pet with cancer, we consider 
two things. We consider what's happening with the local tumor, and then we consider what what is the risk to the rest of the body and, you know, how is the local disease or the systemic disease making the pet feel. And so in order to get the information that we need, the first step is to develop a diagnostic plan. So we consider the tumor that we know of if, you know, if it's once we get a a name on it, once we get a a diagnosis or tentative diagnosis, then based on what we know about the tumor and its location, we can make uh, informed decisions about where it might have gone. And then we create a diagnostic plan to see if it went there. You know, it's called staging, which Mm -hmm. is when we do tests that determine whether or not a tumor has spread to a distant site or moved to a new site to start growing another tumor in another part of the body. And so determining the overall health of of the pet to make sure that we don't have any other issues that need to be addressed like diabetes or kidney disease or, Mm -hmm. you know, anything else like that or heart disease. And once we've established their general health and established the stage of the tumor, then we can begin to make some, again, rational decisions about what kind of approach we're going to take. And we consider whether our approach is going to be more of a definitive approach, meaning you know, the most that we have to offer to try to control the tumor for as long as possible versus a more palliative approach, which would mean minimizing side effects and really focusing on things that make the pet feel better, but perhaps uh, with a shorter outcome. And so for some patients, the treatment plan focuses, you know, more on that. They both will focus on quality of life. I should say that as well. I think Mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of pet owners who are concerned that pursuing more aggressive therapy is at the sacrifice of quality of life. And I think our first goal is always quality of life. The next step is to say, you know, how long do we want that quality to last and and what's the what's the trade off because certainly when we get more aggressive with our treatment we the trade off is that we may take more risks and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that everything goes smoothly and there are no you know no hiccups and no complications but there always could be and you know and depending on things like schedule cost um, possible side effects how bad those side effects could be are they annoying or are they life-threatening? You know, do they respond, do the side effects that we are worried about require medication or do they require hospitalization? So Mm -hmm. balancing all of those things will help us create a, a treatment plan that's tailored to each pet and to their owner. And there's so many different reasons why people make the decisions that we do. And um, sometimes cost is a concern, but I will say that that's usually not the only issue. And very often folks are, are very, you know, concerned about things like quality of life and schedule. For instance, they might be interested in pursuing a more aggressive course, but they might make certain choices because they can't, you know, take off work one day a week, every week for six months. You know, there are, mm-hmm. there are um, scheduling considerations as well. So, you know, so again, that's one of the things I like about oncology when I feel like I'm spending my day doing something that, that gives back and something that provides options where there used to be no options. Mm-hmm. That's very rewarding to be able to help people sort through those options and, and figure out what's going to fit their life the best. So a treatment plan is going to include, again, first and foremost, ensuring a good quality of life, making sure that they are treated appropriately for any pain or suspected pain, making sure that they are treated appropriately for any nausea or expected or anticipated nausea, um, making sure that they're eating as well as they can and covering all of their general health and well-being issues, and then talking about how we're going to approach their cancer, if it's going to be something that's removed with surgery or treated with radiation, and if it has an aggressive systemic behavior, then chemotherapy or other systemic therapies are going to be part of the treatment plan. I think for cancer, the the treatment typically will, I like to say that it parallels the behavior of of the cancer. So Mm -hmm. if the cancer is very locally aggressive, very invasive, but doesn't tend to spread other places, then we're mostly talking about some combination of surgery and radiation. If we are talking about a tumor that is both locally aggressive and systemically aggressive, so it can cause big problems locally and it can spread throughout the body, then we're talking about a combination of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. A good example would be bone cancer or osteosarcoma. If we're talking about a tumor that by nature is systemic and tends to travel throughout the body, then usually surgery and radiation don't have much of a role and we're focused on chemotherapy. And a good example of that would be lymphoma. Mm-hmm. I lost a golden retriever a few months ago due to hemangiosarcoma. And it just—it mm. was just yeah, a I'm sudden sorry. thing. I've lost several dogs to hemangio, 
And I know mm -hmm. you've done research on, on that type of cancer as well. Mangiosarcoma is one of the more aggressive tumors that we treat, and unfortunately it's fairly common. And uh, it is a tumor that we you typically see in, in older, middle-aged or older dogs and certain breeds like golden retrievers do have a, a breed-related predisposition to that that cancer. So it's a tumor of the blood vessels. It's one of the tumors that, interestingly, there is an angiosarcoma in humans. It's it's pretty rare. So it is a tumor that is more prominent and more of a of a uh, clinical you know issue in, in veterinary medicine, especially in dogs and especially in large breed dogs. So I'm sorry to hear that you lost your your friend, that, that is a really it's a tough cancer for sure. It, it certainly is. But I, I learned from every experience, and I didn't catch it in time, but also it's the type of cancer that if I had caught it in time, I'm not sure what I would have been able to do anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the most common places for hemangiosarcoma to develop is in the spleen. And we can't, you know, when, it, when it's growing in the spleen, you don't feel that from the outside and, and your dog might not feel it until it has some uh, blood loss. They can have, they can open and bleed and they can have some internal bleeding and that can cause them to very suddenly feel, you know, weak or, or, or be uncomfortable. But so it is a tumor that, and even relatively small tumors can can bleed and can cause mm -hmm. clinical signs. So we they they don't necessarily give us any indication that they're feeling bad or that something's starting in there. In my experience with that, with Chip, who I I said I just lost a few months ago to that, it was an emergency, and took him to the emergency hospital. They were wonderful there, and saw the X-rays and knew exactly what it was. But then all of a sudden he ate a bagel and cream cheese. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, his energy level increased. And so yeah. that's where I really depended on the veterinarian to bring me back to earth to say, but this is what's going to progress. And I decided to say goodbye to him then instead of taking him home and having it be a 2 o'clock in the morning emergency and, and having him be in pain. So those yeah. are those challenging decisions that pet owners have to make. Absolutely. I think that end-of-life dis discussions are always challenging and also a very, very, very important part of, of my job. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of listeners, and I'm certain that some of them have had their pets' lives impacted by cancer. Let us know how they've been touched by cancer by going to my website at animalacademypodcast.com. Fill out the quick web form and tell me your story. Are there certain types of animals who are more prone to cancer? I don't know if you could even answer that. Yeah, we do know that there are many different breed predispositions. I mentioned that the golden retrievers are one of the breeds mm -hmm. that we sometimes see develop hemangiosarcoma more commonly than uh, than other breeds. German Shepherds are another. Um, we know that Scottish Terriers have a high rate of lymphoma and transitional cell carcinoma. Rottweilers and other giant and large breed dogs are commonly affected with osteosarcoma, which is a primary bone cancer. So. You know, we see that. So there are breed predispositions. Every cancer, a very common question that I get is what caused this and why mm -hmm. did my pet get cancer? And I think that in part there is, an, you know, a need to understand so that you have some control over your knowledge and why you're making decisions and how you're making decisions. And, you know, and I think in addition, folks want to know if there's anything that they should know in the future for future pets. And that's totally understandable. When cancer develops, it is a combination of, you know, a combination of events. There has been some mutation in the DNA. There has been some inability of the immune system to eliminate that cell. There has been that that cell has has been able to overcome many hurdles to, to divide and grow without limit in the body to be able to grow itself new blood vessels to get blood supply and to eliminate waste and to maybe have a path to be able to spread to other parts of the body. And so I think we have mutations in our cells all the time, and I think that our body, ours and our pet's bodies fight cancer probably every day, that we have mm -hmm. little things that go wrong. And most of the time our immune system will identify cells that don't belong there and, and get rid of them. So I think that there is some combination of genetic and environmental influence that will lead to the development of cancer. So we do know more and more about the genetics, about breed dis dispositions or predispositions to certain cancers mm -hmm. uh, as we, you know, as we grow our knowledge. 
there is a, a important, you might be familiar with the Lifetime Golden Retriever study that I don't, I'm mm-hmm. not involved in that study, but there is an effort to follow a large number of golden retrievers throughout their lifetime to look at all their health issues that, mm-hmm. you know, that develop over time. And so I think that when that study is completed, we'll learn a lot more about golden retriever cancer, especially. Yes, my golden retriever, Dylan, was part of that study. That's and he right. ended up having hemangiosarcoma um, at end okay. of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so I, I have a, Dylan. yeah, I remember I was in my 20s and you were his veterinarian. So. <laughs> he's very handsome. I think I still have a picture of him. Do you really? You sent me a picture. You sent me a picture of him with. Well, you had a professional photo of him and with Nick, a bunch probably. of litters that he had sired, and so he's surrounded by, I don't know, forty puppies or something like that. Oh, that's right. Yes, I yeah. think there were twelve, but okay. <laughs> it seemed like well, forty. It seemed like forty. <laughs> <laughs> it did because I was part of that photo shoot trying to keep them corralled. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe it was a hundred. I don't know, but. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he was part of that study, and, you know, that was important to me. And I have a puppy, golden retriever puppy, that's, uh, I think he's 13, 14 weeks by now. And so okay. I am, like, looking at whole dog journal and talking to my dog's veterinarian, and I'm doing, you know, researching dog foods and adding fruits and veggies, just mm-hmm. out of control. But, you know, vaccines, that's a hot topic, too. And so I'm, yeah. you know, talking to my dog's veterinarian about that. So there are a lot of things to think about when you're trying to do things the correct way. I agree. I mean, we worry about that for ourselves, too. You know, we all, we're we trying to live a healthy life, and you don't know what's right and what's wrong. And if what's right for me is the same thing as what's right for you. And so I think that's natural for us to think the same about our pets, because we are their voices in this world. You know, they're, they are our companions, and they're living in our homes. And so we have that responsibility for, you know, trying to keep them safe as much as possible. So yeah, I understand that. And it's hard to know what's right and what's perfectly right. I think that that brings up another important point, which is screening or knowing, you know, knowing when to worry. I think that mm-hmm. um, certainly there are general warning signs of any illness of, as you mentioned at the very beginning, not not feeling right, you know, not eating normally, not moving around normally, having new clinical signs, having something that's just not right. And I think that pet owners know their know their pets better than anyone else. And so I have folks come in who say, you know, they're just not right. And, and maybe you just can't put your finger on it. But that can be an opportunity to do some some health screening to see if there are any flags or any markers or anything that would make you worried about something that's going on in the body. I know when uh, I I did lose a dog of my own to hemangiosarcoma that was in the heart and when she she just didn't seem right and we started to check her out and weren't finding anything right away and then I brought her home for the weekend and then on Sunday I went to just went to the grocery store and came home and she had just had just passed away in her sleep where she was curled up and so mm. I wanted to know why and I uh, asked them to do a, a postmortem or like an autopsy mm-hmm. and found the tumor on her heart. And but it, that when she the day that she wasn't right, it was so obvious to me. She all she did was look at me, and I looked and I said something is really wrong. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't doing anything specific. She just was laying there and she looked at me with a different look in her eyes. And she you know and she wasn't moving around quite normally. And then I said we need to take her in. And I just, you know, I just knew that it was something serious and I don't even, I can't even put my finger on it. So I think that folks who are, have pets are, are uh, very in tune with their animals often and bring them in when they, when they think something's not right. I, I totally agree with that. I had an experience with Charity and she had just had lab work a couple of weeks prior and the, there was a weekend where I thought, oh, there, there, something has changed just, just mm-hmm. slightly. So I took her to the animal specialty um, clinic hospital, and they said, well, we just did lab work, but we're going to do it again. And it ended up being kidney failure. So it was just in a matter of of weeks when Mm -hmm. she took a turn. But we have to pay attention because we know our pets. Yep. I think that also our just as a matter of survival, we ours and our pets' bodies will compensate a lot for dysfunction. You know, if things mm-hmm. are not quite right, we have a lot of built-in mechanisms that help help uh, co- help us compensate and help our animals compensate for for something like that, like kidney failure. You have to you know, you have to lose a lot of kidney function before it actually shows up on lab work. And so things like that can sort of brew until they until they hit a critical point. And that's a common 
question that I get from pet owners who say this just happened so fast. And the thought is that they were normal last week and now they're, you know, they're very ill and there's this terrible cancer. How could it happen so quickly? And most likely it, it didn't. It was, you know, it was coming on for some length of time, but it just hit a critical point where they couldn't compensate anymore. A brain tumor, for example, maybe it's growing in the head. Sometimes they, brain tumors will go grow fairly slowly and then one day they have a seizure because it just hits that mm-hmm. that point and um and they, it can be surprisingly advanced so I, I i think that is an issue that comes up very often because people then look back and say did i miss it should i have seen something could we have caught this earlier and and very often the answer is no it just they were compensating it was not bothering them and then one day it was bothering them so in a previous podcast, I spoke with Dr. Connie Schulte, a canine rehabilitation professional, and we talked about compensation, even with bones and joints and, and different ligaments. And when something breaks down, it may not have been that particular thing that, that caused that to happen. And so mm-hmm. it sounds like it happens in cancer as well. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. We've had a huge amount of information and knowledge we've been talking to you about, Dr. Selting. How about Mm -hmm. if we take a quick break and then we'll be right back for more? Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. We'll be right back. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Kim Selting, who is sharing a lot of detailed information that really is shedding a lot of light on what she does, and how this information will impact your own animals. Welcome back, Dr. Selting. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. There is one thing that I was just thinking about, that I talked to my dog's regular veterinarian years ago about when my dog had been diagnosed with cancer. I said, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was in my 20s, and all of the kind of treatments that we used to impose on our dogs, um, like the flea and tick dip, And I remember having to, you know, being really scared that my dog would have a flea. So, you know, I dipped them in this horrific smelling stuff. Then years later, after I lost them, I went back and said, oh, my gosh, Allison, why did you ever do that? And so my dog's veterinarian said, you know what? He felt the same way. And now, like you said, knowledge is power. I don't think that we can feel guilty about the things that we did that we thought were right at the time and that everybody else was doing to try to protect our, our pets? Yeah, I agree. I think if you've ever heard the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's easy to look it's easy mm-hmm. to look back and say we should have done things differently. And even now, you know, you don't know that what you did caused any trouble at all. It's certainly chemicals are something that we should be mindful of and cautious about. And we know that Bugs carry disease too. I mean, it's important. Ticks can can carry disease that is fatal. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it is important to protect their health as well. And sometimes the best way to do that is through 
is through some standard medications or chemicals. And, you know, it's very easy, for example, to prevent heartworm disease. It Mm -hmm. is very devastating for a dog to develop heartworm disease. So it's always a balance of things. And, And yes, I agree that looking back in time, it's easy to think about how things might have been different, but we make those, we make the best decisions that we can every day for our pets. And so, you know, I think that I agree with you. That's very important to remember. Yeah. I was thinking too, Dr. Selting, that when pet owners are faced with all the various challenges that they have in treating, you know, looking at the various treatments, end of life decisions, possibly, is there any, any therapy or counseling that is offered to these pet owners? That is a good question because I think that there are very important non-medical aspects to every case that I treat. And we do, when when our veterinary students are training, most programs have some communications training. We have a very strong communications program here. Dr. Laura Garrett has made that her focus. She is, is actually an oncologist like myself, but mm-hmm. I think treating treating cancer in patients really gave her a really strong appreciation for how important communication is. And so she's really developed that skill. So our our students do get a a really nice education on that. That being said, we're not being trained to be counselors or therapists per se. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the loss of a pet or the fear that you have when a pet is diagnosed with something like cancer can really make it difficult to make decisions. So a lot of veterinary schools have counselors on staff or have access to to counselors, to grief counselors or social workers or mm-hmm. some similarly trained personnel to help owners, you know, just bounce things off and try to try to sort through the decisions that they have to make. Uh, apart from that, I, I think that we do often serve in that role as veterinarians to help people make decisions. I don't know if that actually answers your question, but, but yes, there are there are some communities have support groups for loss mm-hmm. um, for for loss of pets, and often a good way to find that is to uh, actually call local morticians or to funeral homes. Sometimes have can guide uh, pet owners to uh, loss groups, to grief support groups, and local veterinarians or or veterinary teaching hospitals, depending on where you're located, can also sometimes provide that information. So I also encourage when I'm talking to owners and they're struggling with decisions, I try to engage their own support system as well and asking them if they say they just don't know what to do. Sometimes I will ask if they have someone who knows them and knows their pet and knows what their pet means to them that they feel comfortable talking to. And sometimes folks haven't thought of calling their sister or their best friend or something. They just feel like they are there to be the, be the voice for their pet, and they haven't haven't mm-hmm. engaged those support networks, and so sometimes that is helpful as well. No, that's terrific. I'm in the veterinary social work program at the University of Tennessee, and yeah. it's where they pr- try to bridge the gap between the two professions and the two schools. And mm-hmm. we talk a lot about um, pet loss and, and grief, and also compassion fatigue among professionals yeah. too. I bet that's prevalent in the veterinary community as well. Yeah, certainly compassion fatigue can be a, a big issue. I do think that people who choose to be veterinarians often do it because they truly have a, a passion for animals and a love for, you know, being the voice of animals who don't who can't speak for themselves. So it's not it's not that different from being a pediatrician really mm-hmm. in a lot of ways as far as having a patient who doesn't make their own decisions and who can't always articulate what's going on with them. When we're talking about compassion fatigue, when I've talked to people in the veterinary hospitals, what they've told me is that it's not really the animals. They they know how to care for the animals. It's how to handle the people while they're taking care of the animals. So you've got to play two different roles. And that's where it yeah. becomes complicated. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that that's what you've heard. It, certainly, that mm-hmm. is um, that can be a big factor. I think that working with with people who are again being the voice for their pet, it can be very rewarding. It also can be can be challenging at times. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, again, f- uh, folks that go into veterinary medicine often have a, a very strong passion for animals, and uh, so that can we we tend to get very involved in our cases, and and that can be that can lead to compassion fatigue when you're really worried about your pet or it's a, about a pet that you're treating or you're not they're not doing well. I think it's it's been interesting to me over the years, my own reaction to my own patients, because I feel that sometimes I am most drawn to the animal. 
sometimes I am most drawn to the owner, and sometimes and probably most of the time I am most drawn to the bond that they share, Mm. and that is what really touches me the most is the fact I do like the animal, I do like the person, but what really drives me and, and what I really feel like I am serving is the bond between them, the reason that this pet is so important in their life, and um, you know, and that becomes really the reason to to sort this all out and, and provide some treatment. That's really profound, actually, because the human-animal connection, that bond, and the energy is, you, you can feel that when you're around an owner and their pet. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Dr. Selting, do you want to talk a little bit about your clinical trials? I know that you're really involved in them, and maybe how would somebody enroll a pet in a clinical trial? Sure. I I would love to talk a little bit about clinical trials. I have been very involved in clinical research over the years. Um, I developed a website many years ago at vetcancertrials.org, and that was an effort to try to give people a, a central place to post their clinical trials, because for us to, you know, to really run a good trial, we need to have patients. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. connecting the right patients with the right clinical trials is sometimes challenging. So that then evolved into uh, an AVMA-sponsored website, um, which that that link will still take you there to the AVMA website, and they created a national database across all specialties of clinical trials. And the hope is that, you know, wherever you are, you can log in and say, my dog has this and I'm looking for a clinical trial, and you you can see what's going on across the country. So that is one good way. The other good way to find clinical trials is to uh, ask your local specialist or often these are trials. There are trials that are run in in clinical practice and private practice, both at specialty hospitals and with some medications and drugs and things. There there are private practitioners or first opinion practitioners who participate in clinical trials as well. Uh, There's a variety of different ways that pet owners are connected with the trial availability, but contacting the regional veterinary school often can be a good resource or looking online. Most vet schools have websites and they list the clinical trials that they offer so you can just see what's going on regionally that way. Uh, but first I'll back up a little bit and say a little little bit about clinical trials and their value because okay. I think that pet owners who come in and hear the option of pursuing a clinical trial sometimes have a feeling that their pet will be experimented on or that there is something, mm-hmm. you know, that it, there's there's something sort of, um, I guess, uncertain or risky. And, and certainly there are some, sometimes some risks, but I think that clinical trials are developed when we've already done a great deal of work to decide that a particular treatment has merit and has promise. And sometimes that involves preclinical testing in, in a Petri dish, and sometimes it has to do with drug development and knowing how a similar drug works and saying, hey, this drug works great. Let's see if we can find one that's, for example, less toxic. And maybe the chemist says, well, if I take this this little group off of the molecule, we need to you know, see if it's less toxic because that's the part of the molecule that creates the toxicity. So there's a whole number of reasons why we might pursue a clinical trial. And I think that our ability, people enter clinical trials for many different reasons. Some folks want to contribute to the greater good. Some folks have exhausted traditional options and things are not working and they're, they're seeking a novel treatment. Some people want to go straight into a clinical trial for, you know, for cancer therapy because they want to try something innovative and maybe they, you know, don't have any concerns about standard care or about, uh, you know, about cost. So people will enroll their pets in clinical trials for any number of reasons, including a desire to seek uh, novel care or something that looks really promising, the desire to contribute to the greater good and understanding that although their pet was diagnosed with cancer, they want to feel like something good came of it and that their pet has helped pets in the future. And all of these happen with clinical trials, but the motivation might be stronger for one of these reasons than another on it for a given you know, pet owner. And they are often subsidized. So sometimes cost of care can be difficult because pets live mostly on disposable income. And so sometimes, um, unless there is pet insurance, they're 
uh, you know, sometimes decisions are affected by the cost of treatment and, mm-hmm. and clinical trials might offer subsidized care. That does not mean that we are, you know, that we are denying a pet a better treatment option all as part of standard informed consent. Part of that is making sure that we have discussed all options and that we have discussed the pros and cons and the risks and the side effects and the potential outcome with standard care as well as the what we know about the innovative care. But we often don't know answers to some of the questions for a novel therapy because that's why we're doing the trial. So people will come in and say, hey, this looks really promising. I want my pet to get this therapy. How's it working? And, mm-hmm. you know, and often we say, well, we, we don't know. We can't tell you yet because we have not given, we have not collected the data over time and really had an appropriate chance to look at it. We can often say things like we haven't had any serious side effects or, you know, talk about the short-term risks, mm-hmm. anything that we do happen to know, but we can't really give information about efficacy or long-term outcome until we've actually enrolled all of the pets and looked at the, looked at it properly because it just wouldn't be either accurate or fair to say that it does or doesn't work based on a small number of animals. The, the whole point is to try to get the appropriate number of animals to make the appropriate conclusion. And we also are looking for the, you know, the the patients to fit our criteria so that at the end of the trial, we can make a powerful statement. If we enroll pets that have a lot of deviations or things that don't quite fit what we're looking for, then at the end of the day, our, our conclusions are going to be much weaker because we'll say, well, this is what we found, but some of the patients weren't quite what we were looking for. So that is where trying to connect, you know, the right pet with the right clinical trial can be very valuable. The other thing that's really important is, and the reason that I had made that website, is that um, when you start a clinical trial, you know, the the irony or the these sort of insiders uh, humor about it is that as soon as you create a trial for something, it's it's cured because you don't get any patients. You might be mm. seeing loads of patients with a certain cancer, and then you create a clinical trial, and suddenly you know you're not seeing them, which just is the luck of the draw. But mm-hmm. sometimes it seems ironic and frustrating. So being able to get a, if you once you have a great idea and create create a trial and and get it all set up to have the patients come in. We want to also finish it in a timely fashion so that we can, again, so we can say something important and we can contribute to that growing body of knowledge that is going to create lots of little sentences that build up to a story. You know, we, mm-hmm. we ask and answer questions to say, does this work? Does it, does it not work? Yes, it worked. Here's how well it worked. How does that fit into the bigger picture? Okay, let's combine it with something else. And now let's see how it works in this setting or with a different disease or with a different patient population. And slowly but surely, we build a story. And at the end of that, the hope is that we can say, over the years, we've tried these things. This is what we have learned. This works best and this doesn't work as well. You know, I think that trials can offer subsidized care. They can offer novel therapy for patients that, you know, have failed other treatments, and and they can offer a, a better future for pets. So they, it's very important to, to consider that as, a, as an option. Dr. Selting, are there any grants that you know that are available out there for people that are specifically tied to clinical trials? Do you mean grants for... To help um, with funding? For... Funding for us to run a clinical right. trial? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there are several different funding uh, agencies. Some of our trials are funded internally. So we have, we and other institutions uh, have some internal funds. We have, you know, a call for proposals twice a year here for companion animal grants that is funded by a, a fund, you know, within the College of Veterinary Medicine here. Um, and most places have some internal funding. Morris Animal Foundation is a huge, has grown into a huge foundation that funds, you know, millions of dollars worth of research for for uh, animal health. And so they are, you know, very well-established uh, institution. The AKC funds grants. Those are some of the bigger ones that we go to that mm-hmm. are that are grants that are designed really primarily for the benefit of animals. The NIH, or National Institute of Health, has several different groups within its walls, including the National Cancer Institute. And so they offer, you know, many, 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 many millions of dollars of grants for all different kinds of research. And the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, was created to protect the health of people. And so they are going to primarily fund research that has some translation to humans. So it may also help animals, 
they will fund it if it could also help people. And that's another really Mm -hmm. exciting and cool part of my job and a reason that I was interested in cancer medicine is that the crosstalk or the translation across species is really important and stimulating and it helps us if we look at what happens with cancer treatment in people we can make better decisions for pets if we look at what happens with cancer treatment in pets we can make better decisions for people so you know understanding the you know the effect of a new cancer treatment if you look at that in a in a dog for example that has a cancer that correlates well with a the same cancer in people, we can help that dog along the way and also learn information that helps us treat people better. And we get those answers in a, in a significantly shorter period of time because dogs are naturally shorter lived than people are. That's, that's just, you know, the way that nature is. And we are able to create trials that are very well funded for animals that are more affordable than doing the same thing in people over many, many years, because again, we can get those answers very quickly. So some examples would be the comparative oncology program in the National Cancer Institute was created by some colleagues of mine. So oncologists, Sean uh, Khan, Melissa Paoloni, now Amy LeBlanc. These are people who work at the NIH, and there there are there are people. They work at, at the government level, and they help coordinate this bridge, this translation across species. And so the comparative oncology program was created to bring together. Um, primarily academic centers, just mostly because of the resources that we have with with regards to equipment and and multiple specialists and things like that. But they will they created the con, uh, the COTC, which is a a comparative trials consortium. So they will facilitate clinical trials that are funded that are. Uh, intended to provide information that will inform cancer treatment across species, in other words, translate to people. And they'll have multiple veterinary teaching hospitals that will contribute cases. And we can answer questions like, which of these, these, these three drugs look great for treating a particular kind of cancer? This is a, an example of a trial that has already been run. And the company says, hey, we want to put this forward to people, but we don't know which of these three to pick. And in mice, they all work great. And in mice that have no immune systems that are, you know, that are in a laboratory that have artificially created disease, that's not the best model for cancer treatment. But they say this works really well. We know a lot about the toxicity. We don't know which of these three is worth our our effort, what we where we want to invest. And so we run a clinical trial in dogs with that cancer. And we say, hey, of the three, they all worked, but this one was better because, and they say, thank you very much. And they turn around and put that in people in a really a relatively short period of time. And they say, here's the one we already know about how these three drugs are tolerated in people. But the one that we're going to focus on and try to move forward to become a commercially available drug is this one because it worked the best in the dogs when we looked at the same kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, so there. So, I guess back to the issue of funding, we have we have both institutions that are focused on making animals' lives better, regardless of the translation to human medicine or other applications. And then there also are sources of funding that are specifically focused on animals as a model for disease. And again, that does not take the the personal nature or the individual nature of a pet out of the equation, quite the opposite. It simply says we should pay attention to what's happening in cancer in animals mm-hmm. so that we know more about cancer in all species and we can take that information and make cancer treatment better in people and that and we do the same thing we say what are they doing in people for this because we don't have a good treatment in dogs mm-hmm. let's see let's take that back and see how it helps this dog so you know so that again that crosstalk is very important and and that also leads to uh, to sources for funding that's really exciting yeah it is once somebody enters a clinical trial, is there a certain length of time that that trial usually ends? Or No, it's really variable. You know, sometimes the question that we are asking and trying to answer is very short term. All we okay. want to know is, did the tumor shrink, for example? So sometimes we have what are called window of opportunity trials where we have a tumor that we know is, is going to be you know, okay for a couple of weeks. Like it's not going to, um, we can, we can plan the definitive treatment a week later, two weeks later or something. And we just want to know how, 
a new drug, you know, affects that tumor. Maybe we give the drug, see how it does, and then we move on to, you know, to the rest of treatment. Or maybe we give a, a drug for, for example, bone cancer in a dog that we know is headed for an amputation, for example. And so we might um, give the treatment and then they go to surgery and they have their leg removed as they would have anyway. And then when we look at the tumor under a microscope, we might be able to draw some conclusions about what that what that drug did. So, you know, that's an example of something that might last less than a week even. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there are trials where long-term outcome is really, really important. And so we might use radiation therapy to treat a nasal tumor, for example. And the most important question is how many of these dogs have their tumor regrow after they initially respond? And that might take a few years to to understand. So I, it really depends on what question you're asking and, and when you're okay. going to learn the answer to that question. Well, that's actually a really good segue into a good friend of mine, Diana Oaks, and her dog, Colt. And she Mm -hmm. told me that I could talk about that and just give you um, uh, really positive feedback about her experience at the University of Illinois. And she said that, you know, her dog had the CT on his brain, his nose, did the chest X-ray, and that you came out and you gave the options and decided to do some radiation and she said that seemed very radical to her at the beginning, and she was kind of hesitant. But she said you were so thorough in your explanation of that, and she just said it had a really positive outcome. It did. It hurt, hurt. Colt did very well, and, and I'm glad that she had such a positive experience. The tumor in the nose um, responded nicely to radiation, and when I talked to her, we do have a... Um, our linear accelerator here for radiation therapy is brand new, and it's, uh, it's top of the line for humans, so it's certainly top of the line for animals. It is a very true beam linear accelerator, and it has a lot of different capabilities, including the ability to offer stereotactic radiation therapy. And so when I talked to Diana about Colt's options, we talked about traditional radiation therapy, which involves lots of little doses of radiation, and the option of doing stereotactic radiation therapy, which is where we give a few big doses in just a short period of time, just over typically three days. And, you know, the benefit is that we're done in three days instead of it taking a month to get to get to where we want to be. The downside might be that for, you know, for a dog like Colt, which was a little bit of a unusual presentation, I'm not, I don't know for sure how effective it's going to be, but in most nasal tumors, it seems to be, have a similar efficacy to doing lots of little doses. So it's, it's important to explore all of those different options about, we also talked about the option of surgery, about removing, because this tumor was just, just inside the nostril, if you will. And so a surgery would have removed it, but would also have removed the nose. So we had a discussion about, should we consider surgery, which will change the way he looks, but he will function and and should recover well, and mm-hmm. we would expect a high chance of success. And in the end, she felt that pursuing radiation made sense to her, and she liked the idea of doing the stereotactic because of the benefits that it provided, a fewer short-term side effects, and a short course of treatment. And she was okay with the idea of uh, if radiation doesn't work, uh, or if it works for a while and then it fails, then we can always come back to this idea of surgery and whether that's going to be right for her or Colt at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he did very well. He's a very handsome boy. And he he, he certainly great. is. Well, and she shared yeah. some of the pictures all along the way with me, and they're they're absolutely amazing at the progress yeah. he made. Yep, her, there, we just saw him back recently, and there's no evidence of tumor there. So very, amazing. very, very happy with his response. Yes. Well, she's thrilled. And I'm, I'm sure he is, too. Yeah, definitely. We're going to put, you gave me some links, uh, Dr. Selting, and we're going to make sure that those get put in the show notes so people know how to be considered for a clinical trial, where to go, the websites that you just um, discussed during this podcast. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to talk about regarding your clinical trials? Well, I think we cover clinical trials pretty well. I mostly wanted to cover reasons for trials and and maybe make sure that I'm doing my best to remove any suspicion or concern or fear about about considering the option. Mm-hmm. No one is ever obligated to join you know to enroll their pet in a clinical trial. It is simply one of the many tools in our toolbox and um, and sometimes there you know there's nothing available but um, but sometimes we have something really interesting to offer and and that works out. Can you um, share any of the positives or the outcomes that you see in the future? as a result of the clinical trials? 
I certainly think we learn more every day, and um, I think that we are learning about best possible treatments for, um, for example, for bone cancer. Bone cancer is an interesting story because the, you know, the average age of children with bone cancer is mid-teens, you know, 14 years old or so. It's more of a, a pediatric disease in people and uh, there is a small peak in incidence in older folks over the age of 60, um, more men than women and more boys than girls in, in the younger group. And um, But the but osteosarcoma is, is very similar in, in many ways, both under microscope and in its behavior in the body between dogs and people. And so it is one example of how uh, dogs have already helped us know more about cancer as we uh, with bone cancer specifically is back, you know, probably two, three decades ago, there was some work done on an immune modulator to um, a drug called LMTPPE that was used to try to stimulate the immune system to help to control the cancer. And that work was done in dogs, and that led to clinical trials in children, and that led to approval of the drug, and it now is a drug that is available um, for the right patient in the right situation in people. And so that's a, a really nice success story. And I think that uh, as far as the future and things that are exciting and promising, you know, immunotherapy is is a hot topic again. Mm-hmm. I think that harnessing the immune system to fight cancer has always been one of the holy grails of cancer therapy, the ability to teach the immune system to seek and destroy what it missed in the first place and to get the immune system on board to do that because the immune system checks all the cells in your body. That's what it does all day long. Your immune system wanders around and, and plays duck, duck, goose. Like you belong here, you belong here, you don't belong. And then you know the immune system will get rid of a cell that does not belong. Um, but training the immune system to recognize that cell and also one of the more recent um, big advances in cancer medicine in, in people, and that's starting to trickle into veterinary medicine a little bit, is, is uh, checkpoint inhibitors that will interrupt the cancer cells attempt to con- to get rid of the immune system. So if an mm. immune cell comes to seek out a cancer cell that doesn't belong there, cancer cells can produce substances that that tell it to go away or that suppress the response of the immune system towards it. So interrupting that communication between cells is, has been a, a huge change in cancer therapy in, in recent years. And again, that's something that I think people are working very hard to try to adopt and move into veterinary medicine. So, I mean, there are reports of tumors from ancient age, you know, from ages ago, from ancient physicians where they report a tumor that got infected and then it went away. And that probably has something to do with some nonspecific immune response to the tumor. It comes to fight the infection in the process of bringing a lot of immune cells to the area. They recognize that cancer cells are not normal because they have markers that, you know, identify them as abnormal. And that leads to an immune response against the tumor cells. So harnessing that has been something that has been again, a a big goal of cancer therapy over the years. And immunotherapy has waxed and waned a bit because the immune system is incredibly complex and the relationship between the immune system and a cancer cell is also incredibly complex. And so figuring out the, the best way to make it right, to make that interaction work in our favor is, has been really challenging and fraught with both some unbelievable successes as well as a lot of failure. Right now, we are living in an era of immunotherapy resurgence. You know, there's just right now, there's a lot of enthusiasm for immunotherapy. In the past several years, you know, immunotherapy has been a super hot topic. In veterinary medicine, there has been some work with a vaccine for osteosarcoma. There is a vaccine for melanoma for dogs that uh, has been, you know, a bit controversial, but there are uh, reports that support its use. And so I think that immunotherapy, my hope is that in the near future, we will be able to start making more use of these checkpoint inhibitors and that we will be able to to exploit that immunotherapy uh, again and in a better way now that we're learning so much more about the interaction between the cancer cell and the immune system. One of the areas that um, that I'm interested in that we've started to look at some research in is this concept of radio immunotherapy. Since I've been here, I do both medical and radiation oncology, but my job here is primarily as a radiation oncologist. And 
So there's this idea that when you irradiate a tumor, you change it. And you, if we can find the right way and time to jump in there and, and turn the immune system on to recognize what we've done to say, hey, we've irradiated a tumor that has brought up new markers, that has changed things in the cell, and those markers could be recognized by the immune system. So we need to find a way to say, hey, immune system, come over here and have a look at this because that, again, hopefully will lead to the systemic immune response to seek and destroy the cells wherever they are in the body, including the local site and any distant sites, and improve our ability to treat cancer. So, you know, so we're, so that is exciting as well. So I think, you know, again, immunotherapies are a really hot topic right now. I think that um, as far as veterinary medicine goes, we're always exploring new drugs, new ways to detect cancer, you know, there are new ways to image cancer um, with PET scans are starting to become a little bit more available. We don't have one here. Missouri has one and some other, uh, and the University of Tennessee has one. Um, so different ways to image uh, how tissues are behaving and not just where they are different in size and shape. Um, that is something that uh, is becoming a, a little bit more available as well. Funding the process and procedures that will help animals extend their lives isn't something that's easy to find. If you're aware of any organizations offering funding those in need, please connect with me via my website at animalacademypodcast.com. Fill out the web form there, and I'll be sure that the information is updated in the show notes for this episode. So, Dr. Selting, this is really exciting, and you're on the edge of really cutting-edge research. And I can feel when you're when you're talking about this, I can feel the energy and how passionate you are about what you're doing. Yeah. And what I'm excited about is what you talked about earlier and throughout the, the rest of the podcast, actually, is that we can learn from animals and animals can learn from us. Or veterinary science can use the animals to help humans and human Absolutely. medicine. Absolutely. I think that's incredibly important. We hear about animals being used for different kind of research in a negative way. So I think that this podcast, what's exciting to me um, about this podcast is that it sheds light on how, you know, we can help people and also help our animals in a very positive way to enhance their quality of life. I agree. I think there is a concept called one health or one medicine that is has been advanced in uh, some people use those terms, some don't, but I think that is uh, that is very much a big part of what we do, this idea that health, not just cancer, but infectious disease is another great example of mm -hmm. looking at what happens across species so that we learn about the world that we live in and how to how to fight disease in our in each species. And we all affect each other. Mm -hmm. That's an important lesson that we all have to keep in mind. Our... Yes. Well, these days it's very relevant, eh? It is. It totally is. So, Dr. Selting, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I think that a colleague of mine once said something very profound that I really liked, which is that with regards to cancer, I think we're not, we shouldn't hope to get rid of cancer because we're living longer and things happen, cancer happens. And I think our goal is not, our goal is to find cures and better treatments and less toxic treatments for cancer. Um, and very importantly, the goal is to get rid of the fear because I think that the unlike other diseases like heart disease or diabetes where something about the body just isn't working the way that it used to, mm -hmm. that's something that I think we can get our heads around a little bit more like my kidneys are failing me or my heart is failing me or my dog or, you know, that that's something that is a little bit more familiar, I guess, to, to think through a little bit more intuitive. I think what happens with cancer is that there's this unknown, that there's this wild card that no matter how hard you try, sometimes the cancer is resistant and it comes back anyway, or it doesn't respond, even though in even though in 99% of dogs it might respond, which is a mm -hmm. you know amazingly high statistic, it doesn't help if you're the 1% that it didn't work for, sure. if you're the one dog in 100 that it didn't work for. So, you know, so there's this fear because there is this unpredictability to, to cancer. And so I, I think that Again, knowledge is power, and I think that um, when you get a diagnosis of cancer, 
uh, it's important to work your way through all the information that you can so that you can make a good decision for yourself and for your pet. And that sometimes that's doing everything and sometimes it's doing nothing. And that is, that is okay. Our job is to go through the options and help you understand the pros and cons of everything. And if you say, thanks for the information, but I'm not going to treat, I say, that's fine. My goal is to help you be a voice for your pet and help you protect their quality of life for as long as possible. And if that means for a day, that's what it is. And if it means for 10 years, then that's what it is. You know, if you have a young animal diagnosed with something. And sometimes it is the peace of mind to be able to make a conscious decision to to euthanize a pet that you love very much and you have protected their quality of life for their whole life. And now your job is to protect the quality of their death and help them have a, have a good quality death. And there is huge value to that. So... Uh, and some people don't believe in euthanasia, and that's okay too. Then we then we focus on how do we make the end of life as comfortable for them as possible. So I just encourage people to you know to gather information, and and uh, hopefully that'll help them feel good about the decisions that they make for their friends. So that actually gave me um, some chills a little bit because that's Chip was probably the first dog that I've ever had where I had to say goodbye when he actually seemed to be okay, except for that crash, which indicated he was yeah. not doing okay. And so yeah. I, re- I remembered a good friend who's a, a surgeon told me years ago when I had to make some decisions with my grandmother about what kind of treatment late in life, when she gave me the, you know, decision was, was mine and didn't want to make that decision. I was just like, oh my gosh. But um, he said to me, sometimes do no harm means do nothing. And mm-hmm. so that really, uh, I, I thought about that with Chip. And when I made that decision to let him go when he was eating the bagel and cream cheese I thought okay so he's this is his end of life and it's going to be peaceful yeah, yeah. and that was the gift that I had to give to him yeah yeah I hear you so Dr. Selting thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us you're welcome it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure for me too the clinical trials that Dr. Selting referred to provides us a piece of the long game in the life of pets The long game is often forgotten, especially in the case of pets, but it is tremendously valuable. The long game validates all of our efforts, harnesses the benefits that can potentially be transferred to humans, and it gives confirmation to previous hindsight. Most importantly, we are able to bear witness to and be part of a very important process. Eventually, appreciation of the long game makes the more robust tapestry of learning life, and bond that is the lifeblood of the connection between the pet owner and love shared between the two. We already know that we are drawn to the bond. I urge you to not only seek out how you can help fund the studies going on in your community, but to continue to invest in the deep fabric you make with all of your pets. When it's all said and done, whether we are human or pet, we all benefit from the passion Dr. Selting has for collecting then sharing the research with us here during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.